Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. As you can probably hear, I sound weird. Devin thought maybe I was going 8-bit, but it turns out that I'm actually just really sick. I've been sick all week and my voice is representing that. Devin, what about you, man? What have you been up to? Uh, well, I haven't been as sick, but I have been a little bit under the weather. Uh, but I've mostly just been... Um, uh, trying to get my gear in order. I'm uh, doing a lot of spring cleaning, a lot of selling of gear, of reorganizing computer components and all that kind of boring stuff while I have a little bit of downtime between clients. Well, that sounds pretty nice. Organizing your stuff is always good. Uh, update on the move for you guys who even care. Uh, <laughs> did not get moved into my house this week because guess what? Uh, they missed some paperwork and now I will be closing in a couple more days, which means I get to move out of my hotel into another hotel and then into my house, hopefully. So I will not be homeless soon. But moving on from there, if you can put up with my rather growly voice today, is some questions. I don't normally throw these in, but there were some really good ones this week, and so I thought I'd toss them in the lineup. First one comes from Tim, and he asks, why would you want to have a big bulky device like the Ceremonic uh, AX107, and you can't even record with it. Devin, have you ever used any of these XLR audio adapters? And I guess the first question is, what is the real difference between an XLR audio adapter and a full-fledged field recorder? Well, you know what, and that's, uh, that is an interesting question because a lot of the times the recorders can be used uh, as a general XLR preamp anyway, especially uh, something like the uh, uh, D60 the DR60D uh, and the DR70D. Yeah, DR6, those have camera outputs. They're kind of built to be both. Um, really, I think it comes down to uh, if you want the pristine audio quality, you usually go with an external recorder just because in the DSLR realm, uh, audio is not a priority for a lot of these manufacturers. Uh, Panasonic has come a long way improving theirs. Canon is still a bit weak, in my opinion. Um, but unless you're buying some big fancy actual, like, uh, say your prosumer cameras, your HPX 200s or whatever you got, stuff like that, those all come with really great audio hookups. Um, in the DSLR market, they don't. And so there's always a need to kind of run something in between your camera and that. Now, you can get better audio recording and higher fidelity uh, if you go with an external recorder. Uh, for me personally, I think that recording 24-bit 192 uh, hertz is uh, kilohertz is really well, not just overkill, but there's a lot of research if you look into the 192 kilohertz about how it's not good for a lot of equipment and it's not good for hearing and it can cause a lot of workflow problems and stuff like that. So unless you specifically need it, you should try to avoid it. 24-bit, not so much of a big deal, but I think it's overkill in a lot of cases, and I think too that all of the uh, I hate like matching it in posts. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've got the Red Giant software. I've got Pluralize. I've used a few other pieces of software. They work great, uh, but I'd rather use those for, I really use those for multi-cam and I like to record straight into the camera because I have to turn around quick. Maybe not everyone has to turn around quick. If you're working on a short film or something, maybe that's not a big deal to you. But for me, syncing audio is a huge time sync. Uh, it takes a really long time if you've got like, you know, 20 takes of a shot and uh, you're trying to audition different takes and stuff like that. For me, it's a pain in the butt, and I don't want to do it. It's not ideal to run straight into a DSLR, uh, and that's where these XLR boards come into because you're kind of like preamping a preamp, and you could always say there's some loss in there, and, and DJ over there is smiling because, yeah, preamping a preamp isn't exactly ideal well, when okay, you're trying to get so pristine audio quality. I'm going to derail you a little bit here. So Go ahead. when you say pristine audio, 
it kind of depends on what you're searching for because a lot of yeah. people will say like, well, the only way to get the best audio is to use a field recorder, record the audio directly into that. Well, that's sort of the case, but it's also sort of not. If you look at something like the Zoom H4n, for example, which was popular for a long time, or the H4 prior to that, those units have okay preamps, not amazing, but they do a pretty good job. Then it matters what kind of microphone you're using. So really, mm-hmm. you're going into like a mediocre preamp and then you're recording directly digitally onto the recorder and then of course what you mentioned the syncing in post now you are putting mm-hmm. a preamp on top of a preamp when you plug it directly into your camera but where you save on that is that you can crank down the gain on the input of your camera to just about nothing you know very very low and then right. use the gain from the external recorder now or the external uh, XLR adapter now the XLR adapter on the other hand instead of having like a digital prepackaged system that's designed specifically to work with uh, AD converters and everything else to go into a digital recording system. They're just an analog mixer basically with phantom power and 20 or 30 or 40 dB a gain built in. So all they're doing is mixing the XLR audio that you're bringing in into a set of stereo channels and then sending that directly to the camera. The reason you want to use one of those versus using a field recorder is when you are a single person. And imagine for a moment if you're doing an interview, for example, and this is a quick turnaround. I have to film an interview. The guy talks into the camera basically for like 15 minutes, and then tomorrow they want everything. And maybe I did like 10 takes or 8 takes or whatever. Well, if I have an external recorder recording his audio and I'm trying to figure out like where that's going, uh, mixing that with the correct track, you know, using pluralized to sync or syncing by hand, whatever you choose, that adds more time to it, as you mentioned. But if I just record with one of these XLR audio adapters directly into the camera, I have every bit of audio I need. And sure, it may not be as pristine as some of the higher end uh, field recorders that you can get and the audio that you would get out of those. But where you win is that no one really notices when you're doing voice tracks. No one's going to be like, wait a minute. I don't see enough of the uh, 18 kilohertz signal coming in. And it just sounds awful because guess what? When you're recording voice, you're only using a certain amount of the audio spectrum. You're not really getting down into the low lows. You're not getting up into the high highs. You're sitting in kind of that bass focal range around two kilohertz. Everything else is kind of whatever, who cares? So what are you recording when you're doing film? Well, you're not recording your score. You're not recording a bunch of music playing in the background. You're not recording any of that junk. You're just recording people talking. So how much fidelity do you need out of the voice that's coming into the camera? Well, you don't need that much because guess what? As long as the vocal audio sounds good, you can forget about all the other spectrum. And sure, the cameras use crappy gain and they have a hiss that they add in and AGC is a problem Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But if you can bypass that with an XLR audio adapter, then you're in the clear and you have good audio that you don't have to worry about. Now, you mentioned the DR60D and the DR70D. Both of those Mm -hmm. are awesome alternatives because they're kind of a hybrid. You do lose out a little bit because they're not quite a total analog path directly into the camera. Instead, you you have DACs that are converting stuff from analog to digital to be recorded and so on. And they're kind of a compromise because like the DR60D, since it doesn't have analog pots on it, when you're changing the volume levels or writing the faders, Mm -hmm. you do get that chopping sound because it's actually just issuing a command to drop so many dB or quarter dB to the processor that's running all the audio and everything else. Is it bad? Probably not. And if you're going to spend $200 on something like the Ceremonic AX107, it's only, what, 100 or 40 bucks, 50 bucks more to buy the DR60D? 
Is that right? I, yeah. I think it's, yeah, what is it, 249? Absolutely. Yes. And, and I think that's what part of it is, too, is that uh, for me, external recording is not a priority. Like you said, a lot of human voice doesn't require anything fancy. And for better or for worse, we live in a world where really everyone's fine with MP3s. Like, I know a lot of people who listen, or I guess used to now, listen on Spotify to free music, which I'm pretty sure they pump their music maybe at 128 kilobit MP3 or something like that. I'm sure they're probably using AAC or something like that, but really low bitrate stuff. And I, on nice speakers, I can tell the difference, but the truth is most people just don't care. And while we care when we're recording, because we want to have more control and everything like that, and to the point of external recorders, you can get record them in WAVE or other fancy formats where your camera is basically just taking an MP3 or an AAC and wrapping it in the H.264 uh, codec. Uh, it's one of those that I'm like, it doesn't matter to most people as long as it's loud and it's clean. I care more about the hiss than I do about the bit rate because the hiss is something I have to spend an extra step trying to fix for my clients. Where if it's a, it's a lower bit rate or slightly lower, you know, crunch down, it's MP3, it's not wave. My clients aren't going to bring that up in a meeting. Uh, they will bring up hiss. So it's things like that where I'll pay extra money to get a really good preamp uh, rather than looking for something that records. Now, if you're a two-man team, let's say you're doing a short film and you got somebody running audio, then let him do his own audio. You got to manage files and sync and all that kind of stuff. But you, if it's separately manned, let somebody else take care of it. And that's where you need that kind of recording format. Um, it's nice to have options, though. That's why I like the Tascam stuff. And real quick, too, if somebody says, hey, I don't have hundreds of dollars to spend on a preamp, uh, but my T2i just has terrible, <laughs> terrible audio because I know we've recommended the T2i is a really cheap uh, starter camera. Check out the iRig Pre. Uh, they go for anywhere from 25 to 35. Sometimes they pop on sale on Amazon. And you might need to get an adapter so that it doesn't try to do the microphone headphone combo jack. But I have used two of these things. Uh, in my GH3, and I think they sound brilliant. They give you phantom power. They run on 9 volts, which is a little annoying. But still, um, if, if you absolutely have no money and you're trying to get better audio, it's at least the first step uh, to getting better audio. Yeah, and I believe someone put together a really good hack on how to uh, correct that to turn it <laughs> into right. just a direct plug into your camera. I believe that was... If you're handy with a soldering iron. <laughs> yes, if you're handy with a soldering iron, swing over to DSLRFilmNoob.com and check out the iRig Pre hack that I, I wrote up. That basically, Devin's absolutely right. That's like a 20 dB a gain, little tiny box, has XLR uh, power, so you can or phantom power, so you can power your microphones. It's tiny, it's super cheap. The other one I always recommend to people, and I'm going to present the screen here so you guys can see this is actually the beach tech dxa slr and i'm looking on ebay right now and there are some with buy it now prices at 39 dollars. i mean that's pretty cheap for an xlr audio adapter those are all over the place on the used market with so, levels yeah exactly with levels so i mean don't expect to find that price all the time but occasionally these pop up used on ebay for under 100 bucks and if that's the case mm -hmm. this is a dual channel mixer it has mono and stereo mixing you can use an xlr splitter and with that you can actually go ahead and mix the audio from one source into a high volume and a low volume track and it's extremely cheap it's not 400 dollars like the stuff from juice link uh, the other thing to think about and you mentioned the two-person deal but also 
the recording quality for your camera, if you look at the ratings for most of these newer cameras, like the Canon 5D Mark III, the 6D, and so on, those have a 44.1 16-bit um, input. So your, your sampling rate's CD quality. It's not awful. Yeah. Your audio for your, for your uh, speaking parts aren't, is not going to be affected or compressed in such a way as to make it unusable. It's PCM audio. So, I mean, you're basically dealing with any sort of standard compression you'd see in video. It's just that the preamps in your camera aren't that good. And, and, having... and you, you bring up a really great point with that is that it is vocal. It is a single thing. It's a little different if you're out recording fully and things like that because you do have a large range of audio that you're working with. But when it comes to you're just recording one sound source, and let's say that's the human voice there, it's you really don't need all that extra fidelity. Like a 128 kilobit MP3 sounds terrible when you listen to a lot of music through it. Um, absolutely terrible because music is complicated. There's a lot of frequencies playing with each other and harmonics and everything else, and it's trying to crunch that data down. What I find, what kind of surprises me all the time is the fact that there's a lot of podcasts I listen to, uh, much like this one, uh, that all download and say, uh, 96K, they don't really man. use MP3 anymore, but they use, they use like AC3 or something, right? Yeah, yeah. But they'll, they'll have a super low bit rate. They'll have like a, a 56 kilobit a second or something like that, AAC file or ACC file or AC3. And I listen to it and I don't really notice it's compressed when they're all talking until they play the intro music. And the intro music sounds like garbage because they've monoed it and it's super compressed and it's really complicated for that algorithm to try to reconstruct. But the human voice part of it sounds wonderful. I barely even notice it. It sounds better than FM radio. And I think that that's, an, that's just what to think about here. If you're recording kind of one thing and you're not recording an orchestra, you're not recording complicated sounds and you're just recording one sound source, um, uh, like these lower bit rates may seem low on paper or CD quality seems like, oh, well, I should be getting better because it's broadcast professionalism and everything else. No, no, no. I think that that's more than enough to get the job done and make everyone happy because once again, no one's going to notice the difference except for the two audio engineers in the room. And most of the time you're not making content for them. So <laughs> just things to consider. So we've got to beat the uh, audio adapter into the yes, ground. <laughs> Basically, if you have a crew and you have the extra equipment to go along with it, get a field recorder or get a hybrid unit like the DR60D or DR70D. If you're running by yourself, go ahead and take a look at some of these XLR audio adapters. If you can get it for the right price, it's definitely a thing to consider and very handy in its own right. Next up, Stuck at One wrote in, I think you might have missed the fact that the chipset and motherboard for the E3 boards, and I was referring to the i7 processor that was really cheap, I posted in the show notes a couple of weeks ago, uh, are very fast and definitely, or excuse me, the E3 boards C222 are vastly different than the i7 Z97. Um, basically what he's saying here is he's bringing up the fact that the, that's a server processor. It runs the C22 platform as opposed to the Z97 platform. Um, they don't have PCI Express 3.0 installed on that chipset. It's 2.0. And those are the downsides. He's also mentioning in here that uh, it requires ECC memory in order to operate, and that's going to add to the price. So I did some checking on this just to make sure I wasn't completely off my rocker. I took a really cheap board, the MSI Z97 PC Mate, which is a $90 uh, uh, motherboard, basically like run to the mill, very bottom end, <laughs> nothing special. 
official. Like the Z97 gets, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So then I went over to MSI's site, and I've got links to all this in the show notes. And the E3 uh, 1230 i7 Xeon processor is on the support list, as well as most of the other uh, Xeon processors available. And while that board does support ECC memory, you are not required to use ECC memory with the i7 E3 1230 processor. You do get limited to uh, PCI Express 2.0, but really what cards right now, what GPUs are taking advantage of that in single GPU mode? You're not going to really run into that as an issue right now until maybe two generations from now with the latest and greatest GPUs that are going to hit the market maybe in 2016 or 2017. And you're buying this for a budget rig. So again, that's the Intel i7 E31230 CPU combined with a really cheap motherboard. And the reason to go with that CPU was because it's about $50 to $100 cheaper than the current uh, three, uh, what is it, 4770? Is that the latest model? Yeah. yeah so, yeah, the, oh, go ahead. The 4770 is the one that everyone talks about. I was looking at a 4790 today for a friend's uh, computer that, uh, I'm building out. But yeah, that's that's the popular one that's kind of in that sweet spot around the $300 range for like a really good i7 processor that a lot of people are looking at. So stuck at one, sorry I butchered your read question here because I'm kind of sick and doped up on medication and my reading skills are poor today. But uh, basically what I want to say is that you can use uh, regular memory with that Xeon processor. You don't have to use ECC memory, which is much more expensive. And it works on most boards. A lot of manufacturers don't list it on their regular spec page on like Newegg or Amazon. But if you go over to like MSI's website, and again, I have links to those in the show notes, you can find that even their cheap boards have Xeon support for anything that's 1150 socket compatible. So these cheap uh, Xeon processors on the low end of the market, even though they're missing the uh, graphics processing unit on the chip, they're a pretty good deal and they do work with a lot of stuff so keep that in mind if that's what you're trying to do uh definitely a way to build a budget uh editing system on the cheap all right anything else to add to that Devin? before we move on no that's you know what it's still a good deal and it's uh, still something to consider if you're trying to build a budget editing system together and error correcting memory is not important in editing uh, really only if you're running servers and virtualization or anything really big and expensive and important do you really need to worry about that stuff. Or arguably, some people believe uh, free NAS servers should definitely be built with error-correcting memory. But uh, they, they should. If you are building free NAS, because the way free NAS does everything in memory, um, any errors that happen in memory that the computer doesn't catch will get written to the hard drive, and then it'll validate it and make a checksum for it. And you can run into a whole world of nightmares if you're not running uh, error correcting on your uh, your free NAS. I Other haven't NAS blown mine up yet. Fine. Knock on wood. <laughs> you just wait. Now that we've said something, I know, right? <laughs> on that note, time for the news. Time for the news. First up, we've got uh, Google I.O. announcements. Uh, basically, they've been rolling out with some new stuff here, and it looks like Google is planning some big things for Google Cardboard. If you're not familiar with Google Cardboard, that's basically just a little adapter set of glasses for like 30 bucks that allows you to put your phone directly in front of your face and detect the position of your head. Well, with that combined, they've released the Google Jump, which is basically a 360-degree virtual reality rig that allows you to mount 
a bunch of GoPros, looks like 16 in total, to film 360 degrees of video all around. And then with this jump system, they are allowing you to basically stitch all that video footage together. Now, that sounds expensive, 16 GoPros, but I've, I did the price on the cheaper GoPros because they're down to like 129 for some of the units. You could actually build yeah. this, this rig on the cheap for around $2,000. Devin, did you get a chance to watch the Petapixel demo I posted here in the show notes? That I did check out. Um, what I find fascinating is that uh, not that they've necessarily released this part, it looks like, for purchase. But the rigging I see them set up, um, I'm pretty sure, is also working electronically to control them all at once which is something that's available on GoPros. That little slot in the back allows you to kind of uh, have full control over the software, the firmware of the camera, as well as, you know, just being for battery use or external monitors or yeah. whatever else. Um, and I see that as being totally necessary if you're going to try to operate 16 GoPros at a time, um, especially because just trying to line up all the footage and make it all match, especially when they're shooting in different directions, I could see being an absolute nightmare. Um, but yeah, I was fascinated by the video. It's cool. It's interactive. Um, I guess this falls into the bigger conversation of is this 360 thing really uh, important? Is this something that we should look at for the future? And for me, it's a toss up. I'm kind of like, well, yeah, obviously people are doing it, but I've never seen many people. It's, it's kind of like the 3D argument. I've never seen a lot of people go, oh, that would have been better in 3D. It kind of applies to some movies, but I don't see people watching like skateboarding videos being like, oh, that would be cool in 3D. Um, I see what people actually get like really impressed by is uh, camera movement, uh, whether you're doing like a Matrix 360 thing around somebody or, you know, slow-mo, super slow-mo and stuff like that. That kind of stuff seems to really uh, ignite with people and inspire them. And I don't see 360 and I don't see interactive videos necessarily taking us that far because you lose the composition of the photo and kind of some of the art and stuff like that that goes into it uh, that helps you to tell your story. It's a really cool uh, effect, and I see Google probably using it for their Street View as a cheap way to assemble Street View uh, cars or what have you, as well as being a, a really cheap way to do like uh, the Street View with the bicycles. I don't know why Google wants Street View of everything, but they've got Street View of their server farms. I'm pretty sure they got Street View of like Disneyland. They got Street View of everything. And so I'm sure this is just them finding a cheaper way to do Street View and try to encourage other people to use them as well. I can't see myself using it, but I know that the whole 360 thing is kind of becoming a really cool concept with that uh, that Theta camera uh, made by uh, Rick Shaw or however you pronounce that. Yeah, I can't um, pronounce it. I see. I see quite a few. I see a few photographers using that just as a toy, just to play around with, and um, and I I could see that getting kind of popular to look around and like you know kind of explore a space when you're doing like landscapes and whatnot. Uh, but I don't see it because you need to interact with it. I don't see it being like super, I don't know, big, but for all I know, maybe that's where all the photography will go is people want to interact with their videos and their photos. I know that the rocket jump guys are all over this VR video thing uh, and they've been jumping all over doing combining CGI and stories and everything else with interactive videos. They've probably got one of the most interesting videos that uses this technology right now. Now, I really quick, because I thought I knew about this, but I wasn't sure I had to look it up while you were talking, but there is actually a way to trigger uh, a handful of GoPros simultaneously. Uh, basically, <laughs> GoPro, with the latest firmware update for all of their cameras, allows you to bond one uh, start-stop unit, like the wrist unit or your camera mm -hmm. app or anything else, with up to 50 cameras. So... 
and I've got a link to that in the show notes now so everybody can find that. Um, you can basically bond all these cameras, Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi tethered to your phone or to the handheld remote and start recording on all of them simultaneously. So for stitching stuff together, basically then the only thing you really have to worry about is camera positioning. And if you have a rig that the GoPro actually slides into so that it's positioned mm-hmm. specifically where it needs to be for every single slice of the 360 pie, then that basically alleviates everything but stitching it together and with google's jump system they're providing a full server backend to stitch all of that video together uh, for you and then kick out a result and as you can see by that youtube video link that i have in here you can actually scroll around the 360 view now i was trying to think of ways that this would really be an awesome thing to have for any kind of interactive uh, use. And the first thing that came to mind, and I know this is kind of not necessarily <laughs> entertainment, but is, re- is uh, real estate videos. Imagine Absolutely. for a moment, if you will, as opposed to going in and like doing a 360 shot of a room with one camera and like trying to stitch it all together and getting those weird like bits that don't work. If you could just go in with this on like a stick above your head, sort of like the Google backpack that you've seen in the past and walk around the entire house. And sure, it's a set plan where they have to walk around wherever the guy mm-hmm. that has the backpack is walking. But then the customer, you can turn it over and say, okay, I want to move to the next room. He clicks on it. He can basically tour the house the same way you tour it. And with the Google Cardboard glasses, puts those on, looks completely around, gets to see everything, gets to get up close and like look at all the stuff. And that really gives you a feel of the environment that you're in. Also, imagine for a moment, if you will, and this is going way back to old school gaming. <laughs> Remember the game Mist? Yeah. Now imagine yeah. like that sort of scenario set up with a game like Mist, where you put on your virtual reality headset or whatever, and you walk in and like you're the only man in a jungle, and now you have to solve this like you know point and click mm-hmm. mystery to get to the next spot, and then you're in the jungle again. But now imagine how many cool different bits and in parts of the environment you could really add if you could just look around and like, oh well, this leaf here is shaped like this, and it has to hook with this branch, and then it turns into a key, and then I can open up this door. And I can go inside, you know, that is really compelling from a video game aspect. But the issue I'm running into here is where are people actually going to watch this? You know, right now, uh, Oculus VR is is not really available for everybody. I mean, is it's pretty much still in kind of developer mode right yeah. now. Google Cardboard, it's a thing. I mean, you can take a piece of cardboard and fold it together and put your phone in front of your eyes. But that's something that's cool for maybe like... 10 minutes. And then after that, it's not comfortable to wear around. So until we start seeing a practical, easy to handle, comfortable way to watch this kind of a video product in a 3D environment, then it isn't really going to be that induced or that, um, uh, words escaping me. People aren't going to strive <laughs> to get it because basically yeah. they don't have any way to enjoy it. The real estate thing sounds awesome, but imagine like, okay, come on down to the real estate agent and put on this really heavy VR set of glasses and like turn around in circles for 10 minutes. I mean, that's not cool. Right. You know, or like here, strap your phone to the, to your face. Like the novelty will wear off really fast. Right. So, and I think too, the, cause the Google photosphere works off of like, Hey, tilt the camera to look around. So you, you you take it and you like oh I want to look to the left so you move the your phone <laughs> to the left. Uh, well, that's also a really cool concept. I've seen that fail uh, just about every time when uh, we are in Yosemite 
and a buddy of mine would take a photosphere and then later on he'd go to show it to somebody else they'd be sitting on a couch and he's like check this out and then when he tries to see what's behind him they're like twisting on the couch to yep. try to look at what's behind them um so i don't see that as being a great way to interact with this medium i still see touch as you physically move on the screen where you want to look um, and the 3D part is really cool, but I don't think it's necessary. The capture part makes more sense than the cardboard or the virtual reality to view it. Just viewing it on a flat device that you can spin and zoom and interact with or even on a computer makes a lot more sense uh, than doing the VR thing. Where I do kind of see it coming in is in the same sense that the Google Cardboard really uh, emulates uh, the Viewmaster. And you can tell that's their static. That's what they grew up on, and that's what they're going for. And so I see this kind of being really interesting for a cheap, effective way into the education sector where uh, kids can kind of virtually visit, uh, you know, the grand cathedrals and stuff like that. And they can take virtual field trips to places uh, because now, that would is be that a bad thing, kids. though? Because you know, maybe if you go see, like, I don't know, um, the Notre Dame's mm -hmm. Cathedral in VR or whatever in school, right. then is that going to limit the kid? He's like, ah, it's good enough. I've seen that. I don't want to travel the world to go see that stupid cathedral. You know, <laughs> I saw it one time while I was in high school. Is that going to be bad for future generations? That's, that's a much bigger psychological discussion. But I guess briefly, I, I my own opinions on it is that uh, you take you, if you can take the world and kind of put it in access uh, in the reach of children, uh, they're going to have a greater understanding of the vastness of the world and everything that's included in it. Um, and I think that uh, there's nothing but good things about that. People understanding more about and getting more involved with the world around them is very important. And for a lot of uh, families and a lot of schools and stuff like that, uh, actually visiting the pyramids and stuff like that's way outside of their scope of financial reasons or whatever else. So. Uh, something like this, I don't see necessarily inhibiting anybody uh, because, of course, it's always way different to be there yourself. Uh, we've all seen billion photos of the Eiffel Tower, but when you see it in person and at scale, uh, or it's like not when we that went cool, to Yosemite, man. I've seen it a bunch of times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Eiffel Tower maybe not the greatest example, but uh, like Yosemite, when you go there and you see the vastness of the of the rocks and everything else, and you climb and you interact with that place, it's a much different experience than just like, oh, it's the default wallpaper on my Mac. So it's it's one of those <laughs> things that um, I, I don't think it inhibits anything, and I think anything that can help uh, children to explore what they normally don't have access to, uh, the more you can put in front of them, I think, uh, you know, the more uh, opportunity and possibilities they have to grow and learn from those virtual experiences, if you will, uh, which I don't think replicate real experiences at all, but I do think that they, uh, they come as um, a decent substitute when it's the only option you have. Now, pulling this back to actual practical uses here, the 360-degree yes. <laughs> video, and I, I got asked this question earlier earlier today when I was kind of writing show notes is like, why would you need this when you could just do a 360 panorama uh, photo mm -hmm. and then use that as a backdrop for whatever? Well, there's multiple reasons. And uh, this is something that like I had to actually think about because at first I was like, you're right. You know, if you have a static scene, what do you care? Like you could just do photos. But in reality, you never really have a static scene. And what's cooler, like having a bunch of people that are kind of disappearing as they stitch photos together or like weird signs that don't quite line up or whatever else, mm -hmm. or having videos stitched together where when a leaf moves at this view, the leaf also moves at this view and the wind is interacting with stuff all around. And the 
video demonstration is the best example. The, the video demonstration in the show notes, the guy actually like does wheelies with a car, you know, not wheelies, but sir, um, donuts around the camera. And like you get all the beautiful smoke mm-hmm. gathering up and the car moving around and all the interaction and stuff. That's really way more compelling uh, for real estate, though. Maybe you're right. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, static photos might be just as good as a 360-degree uh, video camera experience, too. So I don't really know where the future is with this sort of thing, but it's out there. It's getting cheaper. $2,000 will get you 16 GoPros and probably a couple hundred more dollars for this mount. And Google is providing the cardboard and everything else, so very little investment on your part to get what used to be, what, a fifteen dollars or $20,000 setup. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's it is reaching more and more approach, uh, approachable and easier to implement. Um, the first time I saw a DIY uh, GoPro, I was pretty sure was with um, oh, I'm struggling to think of the name Indie Mogul uh, back when um, I forget who was the first guy who did Indie Mogul. His name's escaping. Oh, yeah, right now, I know. But he did, with the monkey. He did a matrix effects. Well, yeah, with a bunch of GoPros. He did a matrix effect there. And uh, I think Devin Supertramp also for some kind of dog video uh, did a 360 thing. But when I watched the behind the scenes, they were always clunky. They're difficult to work with. Um, and it took a lot of time and post to kind of line them all up and get it just right. This is a completely automated solution. So it really puts in, in the hands. Well, this of, doesn't uh, provide though, the, the matrix well. view like you're because no, what no, you're describing is, is more of like the opposite where it's actually a circle around your um, your focus point, like yeah. a guy standing the there video whatever. together. Stitching the video together is the most time-consuming part of any one of these, like, you know, uh, multiple cameras. But do you think this could be actually used in that scene. manner? I mean, it appears like Absolutely. just everything I've read. Footage. Yeah, but this appears to be like a 360-degree, like, circle around you. So if you stitch something like you're talking about together... Right. I don't. I mean, it should work. I see what you're saying, but I don't think they designed it for that sort of application. Maybe you could hack it, or maybe there's an SDK available that would allow you more control over the way it stitches stuff together, how it processes. I'm it. pretty sure it's doable. Yeah, that, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. You you line up these cameras straight instead of in the little circle they have here, and uh, I think more or less their software is going. You're going to be able to do stuff in the same way. I'm excited about the mounts. I forgot about 3D printing and how uh, making mounts like this that are like perfectly width apart and everything else that you need uh, makes things like this a lot easier to do with doing multiple GoPros. I just get excited when I see multiple GoPros. It's yeah, always a good sign. Before I beat this into the ground, if you look <laughs> at the show notes, you can see a picture of. The the 3D printed mount for all of these GoPros. And it's got screws at the bottom, uh, which means that they basically have sectionalized this so that if you have a small printing platform, you can print one piece at a time and then screw it to the unit. And there are other pictures available if you check out that Petapixel article that show you top Mm -hmm. view as well as some of the other views. And those also show individually printed sections that are designed to be small enough that you could fit that into a single printing envelope and do one piece at a time. That makes it a lot easier to handle. Uh, They also, if you're into maybe multiple GoPros, if you wanted to do a 3D rig, there are a number of plans available for 3D printers in order to uh, mount two GoPros at the right spacing in order to get that 3D perspective. And, And you don't necessarily need to have a 3D printer either. There are many websites online that for a fee will print it out and mail it for you. Yeah, Shapeway is one of those, uh, although it's very spendy compared to the cost of 
uh, ink for a 3D mm-hmm. printer. The ABS plastic and PLA plastic <laughs> is extremely affordable, probably like 40 bucks a roll. And mm-hmm. Shapeway charges maybe 40 bucks a device. So as many pieces yeah. as this would take to print, you're probably looking at it four or $500. <laughs> you might as well just get the damn printer, sure. Now rolling down the notes here to something a little bit weirder. Uh, most sensors are made with RGB uh, setup. So that means they have a red, a blue, and a green filter in order to make your color images. Samsung is developing a slim RWB, which is red, white, and blue. How American of them. Uh, this sensor <laughs> is basically designed to compensate by bringing in a brightness level as well as the red and blue channels and then to generate the difference in order to produce an image. Now, this sounds kind of interesting, but it also seems kind of like blah. And I was trying to figure out why you'd even care. And it turns out because they do this, they're able to reduce the thickness of the sensor and the size of the sensor and the size of the pixel sites. So now they can get down to even tinier 13 megapixel sensors. And what does this fix, Devin? It, it, well, it definitely fixes something like an iPhone. It, it, it slims down their uh, the whole camera assembly for smartphones. I also think, too, which has also been a problem with these smaller sensors is light. And uh, it looks like the while they don't have any numbers, it seems like they're promising that you'll get a brighter image because it has a pixel dedicated to uh, lumosity. So, yeah, that's true. Um, that is one of the things to actually get excited about uh, with this particular type because you have one sensor site that doesn't have any filter over it. Uh, you can basically get a brightness measurement, and that allows more light into that single pixel sensor. So that gives you better low light sensitivity. But the biggest thing that they're they're flaunting here is to get rid of the camera bulge on your camera phone. So your phone will no longer have that little extra lump where the sensor mm-hmm. is. And I guess that's a thing. Um, it's out there. Go check it out. There's a link to DP Review to find out more about that. These aren't going to be in any cameras in the near term, but look for probably late 2016, 2017. Now, something that is available right now is the small HD uh, what mm-hmm. is this? The 501, actually. So if yes. you're familiar with uh, Small HD's uh, product release cycle, basically they start off with an expensive version. They did this with the uh, DP5, the DP6, and so on. They'll have the one with the SDI inputs, and then they'll have later on one for a lower price with the only HDMI inputs and outputs. And that's the case with this. So if you remember us talking about the 502 previously, the 502 has SDI inputs as well as HDMI inputs and outputs. The 501 is a $300 less expensive, or I believe it's $899 is the sales price. And it's basically just missing the SDI ports. Everything else is pretty much identical. Devin, are you excited about this, or are you still thinking that you want I'm, the Blackmagic Video Assist? I, I'm really still liking the Video Assist. Uh, what I will say is that their form factor of the, as they call it, the Sidefinder attachment, I think is absolute genius. It makes sense. It fits on a lot of rigs, and it fits very nicely, uh, which a lot of external EVFs do not fit nicely. And sometimes I find myself using uh, my left eye, even though it's on my right shoulder, just because they're so bulky. Um I'm still just excited for the SDI one because the SDI one really adds a lot of features. Uh, even though they aren't currently there, they're still working on firmware. 
Uh, they promise that it'll do cross conversion from SDI to HDMI and vice versa, which could just be a really useful box that you normally spend a couple hundred on from Blackmagic for something like that. Uh, but even so, if um, HDMI is the only way you're going for 900 bucks, it includes uh, the ability to load custom uh, LUTs, which we've talked about in the past, can help make your raw footage look more closer to what you'll actually be looking at uh, after color correction. And in the near future, they say the LUT downstream, which means it's output. It can actually output that LUTs uh, to other viewfinders, wireless viewfinders, directors, viewfinders, whatever else, uh, which is a big thing because not many monitors uh, I've seen lately have that ability. So I'm still excited to spend the extra money to get all those SDI capabilities because I see this as being the one EVF that I take with me everywhere and I use on every camera I have. Uh, but for other people, um, if you're just going to stick with HDMI and you don't need an external recorder, this is a fantastic, you know, it's uh, with the waveform, vector scopes, RGB parade, false color, zebra, histogram, focus peaking, all that kind of stuff. It really gives you all the options uh, and it's a solid monitor and I think it's just the right size for me. So, you couldn't, know, different strokes uh, for different folks. Couldn't somebody just what? make an adapter for the uh, Blackmagic Video Assist to get you that basic viewfinder capabilities? Because it's not like it's rocket science here. I mean, they're running your well, viewfinder. Yeah, there's a mirror. I mean, it's <laughs> super complicated. But otherwise, like, it's not really beyond the scope of expectations for Blackmagic or one of these other companies to just build some like generic version that clips onto it, right? No, 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 it's not. And I could see somebody possibly 3D printing some stuff too as a provide your own mirror kind of a situation. Um, for me though, it's, um, I, I, I like everything that they've done with it. For me, the, uh, it's part of it too is that the weight. Um, and when I look at their spec sheet and everything else, I like the fact that they're, when you look at their EVF when it's closed, I'm struggling to find a picture right now, but it has kind of like a patch through box that shows you a small. Yeah, they do have that little square. And uh, this, I, that's a, a clever cutout. It, that clever cutout, it's a little thing like that that I go, oh, I could see that being so useful uh, to quickly check while I'm recording or something like that in an instant. I just need a small representation of my histograms or an RGB parade to know that I'm within spec. Um, and that's always what I'm asking. That's the reason why I have those scopes. I don't need a big full screen scope unless I'm color correcting. I'm like, I just need to make sure I'm getting the full use of my sensor and I'm not blowing something out or underexposing. So uh, something like that is really cool. You're right, though. Uh, but the question is, is who's going to make it? Who's going to make something for the black magic that's going to put into that form factor? If they did, it would be crazy. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, though, if somehow DP has a patent on it, so no one else is going to touch it, and the only solution would be custom. Uh, but it's not outside the realm of possibilities. It has mounting points, and it's five inches as well. It's very doable to have something like that uh, for a black magic. Yeah, the question for me, actually, is whether or not the black magic video assist will have a better or as good a screen as the 501 or 502. That's where it kind of mm -hmm. is like a clincher, because... You know, with the previous uh, small HD monitors I've owned in the past, I've had the DP6, uh, the DP4, uh, I had the DP7 for a little while. They have really good screens. Even the, really good screens. Yeah, even the old DP6 is still a pretty good bargain if you can find it on eBay for like three or $400. That is a beautiful screen for the price. And this looks like it's going to have a really nice screen plus the color accuracy that they're touting in this, whereas you don't hear any mm -hmm. of that from Blackmagic. So maybe right. that's where the difference will will come from is that you'll get a beautiful screen for $899 or $1,200 for the SDI version, or you yeah. can get SDI and HDMI in the Blackmagic version, but you're going to spend uh, $495 well, and get recording. a... 
you'll you'll get you'll get 10 bit 422 ProRes recording and DNX HD. Yeah, true. The recording as well, and the price is lower. But the other thing too is that uh, this is already shipping. The small HD 502 and 501 started shipping immediately after announced, and their next day shipping mm -hmm. to you. Whereas the Blackmagic Video Assist is a, currently scheduled for July 30th on B&H for shipping, but that may get well pushed back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then on top of that, what happens if uh, it sells out right away and then you're on the waiting list for, I don't know, maybe yep. in October when it finally hits market and then the new version comes out and you're disappointed that you don't have that. So that could be an issue as well. Yeah, so, but still, uh, something to consider. They're definitely the two monitors to be looking at, and they, I think, uh, I think you're right too, because Small HG makes beautiful screens, so... I still think that they're both champions in uh, their own kind of categories, and it really comes down to you know what you need and the right tool for the job that you're doing. Now, last thing on the list here uh, before we finish up the show is actually oh well, I've got two things actually. If you guys look, Devin behind him has a <laughs> lunchbox, yeah, and I was making me. this joke when uh, he got on. Yeah. I was like, "Hey, you hungry, man?" He's like, "Why?" <laughs> like, because you got a lunchbox in your shot. <laughs> So that's back there. Um, but before we touch on that, um, the Sennheiser AVX series, and I've got some uh, videos posted, some links to videos in the show notes. I generally use Sennheiser G2 and G3 lav mics, and I have been using them forever. Now, there's always been debate about which lav mic is the best to use and which lav kit is the best to use. For me, it comes down to Sony or Sennheiser, and I've used both of them and like both of them, but I generally use the Sennheiser units just because that's what I've been buying over the years. And the early uh, UWX or UWP, I can't remember what the last three letters are, uh, were a little bit, you know, um, not very reliable and hard to use, but their latest generation are awesome. Anyway, now Sennheiser has these cool AVX units, and it's a little weird because we've tried to get away from uh, AGC, which is automatic gain control, but now they're selling you a microphone that has built-in gain control for audio inputs as well as battery detection for your camera that'll shut itself off when your camera is not in use to save batteries on your wireless kit. And this unit is super tiny. If you guys look right now, you can see that it's basically just an XLR audio adapter that plugs directly into your camera's XLR inputs, and then a wireless bit, and that's it. And it just runs on a couple of batteries. The handle itself has to use some special 3.7-volt battery system. I haven't been able to determine whether that's off the shelf or you can get that from Sennheiser. But still, this is a pretty slick-looking unit, and it's $899. Now, I cringed at that for the starting price. <laughs> that's super expensive. But, man, this looks to be like... Basically, if you don't know anything about audio gear at all, you get one of these, you don't know how to use it, you just plug it in, hit start, and it seems to take care of everything for you. Is that kind of what you gathered from this, Devin? That's, that's what I gathered. I really see their main marketing here is, hey, it's for people who are not audio experts. It's for people who uh, are focused on video, now they're required to take audio, or people who are just starting out who... Audio can be a complicated monster. Um, in some ways, even more than video... Uh, but you know, to your thing with automatic gain control and everything else, it makes it, it makes sense. And we all say you shouldn't. Uh, same thing with like with focus, you should have manual focus. Uh, I'm kind of in between the two. Uh, even though this may be frowned upon by a lot of people, me personally, uh, I know people like DJ will record dual tracks and they'll have one, you know, nine dB less or something like that. 
I honestly don't want to bother with that. If a mic gets blown out, I don't want to have to go into editing, grab the other track, bring it up and cover it up or whatever else. And I like to have two tracks record two separate sources individually so I can mix them individually. So in this case, um, I use limiters. Uh, they're kind of like automatic gain control. They just, when, you know, something gets too hot, they bring it back down so it doesn't clip. And that's not always possible in every recording situation. And it depends on the mic and everything else. Uh, but for me, a lot of the times, as long as it's not too crazy, uh, I set the levels at a healthy level and then I go ahead and put on a limiter and then I'm done. And even if they get too loud, you don't notice it and I don't have to clean it up and it just works for me because that's kind of what I would have been doing anyways in post. And I know that DJ's cringing when he hears that. Uh, but for me and my fast turnaround time, that's what I'm, that's kind of the mode I've gotten into is doing that. It's not automatic gain control. So, cause that can get messy if you're trying to do a lot of post work, uh, as well as deal with hiss and other noises like that. But, um, I use a limiter because I don't got time to sit here and edit tracks together. I can't actually uh, complain about that method. If you have a box that's dedicated to uh, limiting and a gate is really handy as well. If you can get a gate built in, um, I know Rolls sells a couple that are on the low end side and sound devices sell some expensive ones. They do actually have really decent limiters and really decent gate systems built in. And when I say gate, if you're not familiar with that, that basically sets a threshold to turn off audio. So if you have a noise floor like hiss or air conditioning noise or whatever, whenever the audio reaches a certain minus dB point, say you set it at like 40 dB in the negative, then it'll just shut off and go to no audio at all. And that keeps the track really clean if you have problems with that. You can also do that in post. Limiting though, the issue you run into is that when you are getting audio in, where I was talking about it and doesn't really matter what kind of compression is being used, well... It does when you're limiting voice when you're maxing out a mic. Because if you max out a mic and the limiter is taking care of the audio, well, it's taking care of it after the mic's diaphragm in the audio signal before it gets to whatever is recording it. So it's in between the microphone and the final recording device. And that limiter, what it'll end up doing is if you max out the mic itself for whatever uh, rating, uh, you know, breath threshold or whatever, if, like if I blow into the mic and you just really bang up the uh, sensor or whatever, that limiter is just going to bring that down and you're still going to have that distorted sound in the background that you can't do anything about. So that's where you run into problems. Devin, am I correct mm -hmm. in this? Like, you don't No, you're absolutely correct. I'm not an audio engineer, uh, but... And I'm, uh, I'm not me, explaining that very well. The <laughs> diaphragm. Uh, so, there's, I, again, I'm there's sick, physical, guys. But there's yeah, a, you are sick. There's physical limitations yes. to uh, how, much, uh, how much sound a microphone can take. You don't normally think of that because you're always adjusting levels. Yeah, and it's and based on a pressure threshold. So the pressure th threshold for the um, diaphragm of the microphone, which is basically like a little disc that moves back and forth to generate the audio, and that's the same whether you're working with a, uh, a dynamic mic or a phantom power mic. Either way, you're moving some coil or you're moving some capacitive device in order to generate an audio signal. When you max out that pressure threshold, the audio is going to get wacky no matter what. And mm -hmm. if you have a limiter, it's not going to fix that. The limiter is just going to smooth out the peaks and set a threshold where the volume doesn't go over that mark. So if mm -hmm. you want to bring it up, and you can do the same thing with a compressor. If you set up a compressor as a limiter or as a compressor, you can actually keep all your audio kind of even at a certain level, and that makes it better too. But both of those are sort of tricks that even if you do them, you could still end up with crappy audio recordings yeah, a lot of it a lot of it depends on the mic and it depends on your preamps and everything else um i've used it 
like extensively in podcasts with an H4N when I need to record four tracks. I don't have room for safety tracks. Uh, I'll throw a limiter on each, every single one of them at like negative two dB so that if somebody laughs or yells or something like that, uh, it's one of those where it may not be the cleanest recording of, say, somebody laughing, but it's not also going to blow out your ears and sound like, you know, they're hitting like the edge of the uh, you need the gain control and everything else and sound terrible. So uh, for me, it's been useful in situations where something unknown pops up, uh, but it definitely shouldn't be a substitute for setting proper levels and trying to be a little bit reserved. So you have a little bit of headroom if somebody picks up how loud they're talking. Uh, yes. So that so that they don't run into the limiter. It doesn't make up for that. For me, it's just that that same reason why you have a second audio track as a safety. It's not as useful as a safety as a second audio track. But like I said, sometimes you have a quick turnaround time and you wouldn't fix it anyways, even if you did have a safety track because you don't have time for it. So teach their own. Now, one more thing. The safety track isn't as hard as it sounds. There is a it's thing not. in Premiere <laughs> that's called fill left or fill right. And if you're not familiar with this, you should definitely go check this out. It's in the, the effects section. Just type in fill and you'll find it. And basically, if you record a safety track, you have a right and a left channel. When you use fill left, it takes the left channel and fills both stereo channels with that channel. If you use fill right, it does the same thing in reverse. So all it is is one single command to pick the audio that you like the best, drag over the effect, and bam, you're done. So especially if it's continuous track, it's almost, um, you know, it's non-invasive. It doesn't take up any time at all. It's super easy to do, and it's really simple. It's not like it's it going to tear you up. Now, I do <laughs> use is. limiters, and I'm actually using one right now on my uh, DR60D. I've got the DR60D plugged in, and I've got a limiter on my channel as well as Devin's channel for the podcast that is actually handy. And you're right. You're absolutely right. There are times when a limiter makes more sense than other processing systems. Same with a compressor, same with a gate. So make sure you understand what all these devices do and use them correctly for your needs. Uh, there isn't one right solution. When you turn your audio over to somebody and they listen to it and they don't complain, that is the right solution. So and. And keep yeah, and keep in mind too uh, what he brought up about gates. Uh, you can do gates in real time, and I've done it for live productions. But a lot of times, I'll actually do gates in post. Yeah, it's one of those that you can with Premiere. You can set up all your gates. You can test what uh, settings work best for the entire audio recording, instead of just kind of setting it up in the beginning and then watching it either work or fail as things go along. So I, I tend to just let, uh, in terms of gates, I let that roll until I get to post. Um, but sometimes, too, if you're, it's very helpful to know those tools and how to set them, not just for post, but sometimes if you're in a live production environment, say you're working iMag or um, say, too, for some reason you're doing like live streaming like we're doing, uh, gates and stuff like that, uh, you know, there's no, there's no way to do it in post because it's live. So yeah. uh, knowing how to set those up and use those, they're very useful when you're live. But limiters, if you do them in post, they're not really worth anything. Uh, limiters during audio recording can be useful. Uh, but compressors as as well as gates can be done in post with, uh, you know, uh, you know, mixed results. It depends on who made the software and a bunch of other variables. But if you dig into I Audition, uh, Audition has that uh, speech leveler. And yeah. that's a pretty handy tool. And that's basically like a disguised compressor slash limiter system all in a software package. And you apply that. Um, generally, if I'm doing like the podcast, for example, I'll throw a soft 
uh, speech uh, equalizer on there. And that, that will basically bring the quiet parts and the loud parts up to about the same volume. And it does a great job. Yeah, it's it really good. It does a really great job for being automatic, for just kind of dropping it in and being like, all right, do your business. Uh, it's one of those automatic tools that you kind of get suppressed. Like, you know what? This is pretty good. I could have spent, you know, 10, 15 minutes doing this, but it kind of did it for me in 20 seconds. So Yeah, and I have a shortcut. I usually keep it written down, but I think that if you guys are looking for the gate, um, I have a video on it that shows you how to find it. It's not labeled gate in Premiere. It's labeled like dynamics. And you have to go into dynamics. And then under the dynamics audio effect, there's a button in there that's, that has the actual gate feature. So look for that if you're trying to figure out how gate works. It's really awesome if you're trying to eliminate air conditioning noise or something like that. The other thing, and this is kind of off topic now. We're kind of rambling <laughs> into the, the bushes here. But basically, if you have an audio bed that has a little bit of noise and you want to limit it, you can use gate, and gate works fine. But the problem there is that now you have complete silence wherever there isn't any speech. And that's okay, but you need something to fill it in to make those transitions nice and smooth and constant. And what you end up wanting to do is, say you have an air conditioner that turns on and off during a speaking portion that was filmed inside. The air conditioner is running some of the time, and it's not running other times. That would be a good example of using the gate to shut off the air conditioning noise completely, and then using a recording of the air conditioning noise to make it continuous in the background at whatever threshold you want. And that would make your audio sound quite a bit better um, altogether because it all feels like it was recorded at the same time with the same stuff going on in the background as opposed to having that sort of weird mix going on. So that's an example of where you can kind mm -hmm. of bring all these things together. Now, we've kind of dug this into the ground, and I actually yeah, still want to talk about that lunchbox behind you. So, Devin, take it yeah, away, man. Sure. Tell me all about that thing. <laughs> Well, um, I don't have a full review yet. I haven't formed all my thoughts on it yet because I need to go out, use it with a few clients, and see what's going on. Um, I guess if you uh, give me a second, you can talk about price while I take it off the tripod. Did we determine what they finally locked the price in at? Is it? I think, I think it's two a, grand. Two grand. The, they've been bouncing around all over the place, and uh, Devin's one of the Kickstarter backers, so he got it for extremely budget price of eight ninety nine. Now I believe it's up to two thousand or two four or two thousand four hundred ninety nine dollars. So uh, I think they no, I think they went back down to two grand because uh, they got some kind of funding or something else went well with production role. And last I saw on the website currently, not even a pre order price, but an actual price of two grand. I think they did a, a Kickstarter update where they told me something good happened with them financially and they were able to bring the price down so that more people could afford it. Nice. So, so what do you got there in your hand? Uh, okay, so I do have um, uh, my own handles on the front here using the 15 millimeter rails. Um, there's a lot of good and there's a few, uh, you know, not so good parts of this as you'd expect because it is, uh, you know, the first time that they've made hardware before. Uh, for one thing, the handle uh, that they come with uh, which you can barely yeah, see. Yeah, I can see the uh, bottom of it there. Right here. Uh, they basically just put this on a bolt through it, and they put plastic here. And then this guy here, no matter how much you tighten him, he's, uh, he's going to turn. And so it doesn't work very well as a handle that you can grip and lift the entire uh, device by, uh, which right now temporarily until I figure something else out, I've got my old uh, handles from my other rig on here. Uh, because with these 15-millimeter rails, I can take lift the entire thing off of my shoulders with these handles, which is kind of what I'm looking for in, yeah. a, in a rig like this, a shoulder rig. Um, it's definitely made out of super intense metal. It's, uh, it's very thick, and uh, it definitely weighs, too. I'd say probably about eight pounds wow. or so. Um, 
you definitely want a bigger tripod head. You don't want to be using a photography tripod for holding this up. Uh, but um, I still have to do audio tests, but all the audio features are here. You've got both um, the little uh, paddle that you're supposed to put your, G, your G2 and your G3 on. Okay. This uh, so you still have this paddle thing that works great for holding on to it. And as you can see, I've got my old G2 on there uh, while I test it out. Um, as well as you got audio output too for running to a separate recorder. Uh, the levels that they have built onto the thing actually work really well. Um, I like the way that they're lit up and they have a small delay to them. So if something peaks right away, you could look over and actually catch it before it goes down. So I'm a fan of that. Um, I still have to get the battery for the back of it because uh, I do plan on running a bigger like gold mount battery or something like that. But the internal speaker part works really well. Having these... Uh, audio levels uh, right here where yeah. you don't have to think about it. You can just feel for them. That works for me. Uh, that totally works. I really love how they did that. Um, there's other parts that are kind of like it, it's mounted with a lot of screws. I don't mind that. I don't mind pulling out a hex wrench and readjusting it. Cause once you have it the way you want it, you'll keep it that way. Uh, but the 15 millimeter rail system that came up with in the front, which I'll show pictures of later is kind of eh, not ideal. It's not locked in really. Um, as yeah. well, too, all the switches are super loud. Like the power switch oh, here. Oh, they all click over and have, like, really strong clicks to them? Yeah, they all have really strong clicks. So it's one of those that you're not going to be uh, flipping here and send up your audio levels uh, while somebody else is rolling tape because uh, they'll definitely hear that. Um, that's not as big of an issue to everybody, but uh, little things like that is for me. One thing I do love is kind of like um, we talked about with the audio on these external recorders. If you do go into the camera and your camera is your audio recorder. You're not using an external one, though in most cases you could kind of use an external one and still do this feature, is uh, you can switch from listening to the preamps inside of here to listening to the output on your camera. So if which your I'm really camera into. has a headphone jack, you could actually feed it back into yeah. the unit. And then so the listening piece, and I'm looking at this right now as you kind of lift it up on your head, mm -hmm. is that little like rubber bit right next yep. to your right ear. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. Yes. And so that's that's where the speaker is, and then the volume is right next to the two uh, audio inputs here. How it's is that for like actually listening? I mean, have you tried using that yet? Is that uh, yeah. easy enough to hear everything? Do you like press your ear hard up against it or what? No, you don't have to press your ear very hard up against it. It's uh, it definitely if you're using the feed off of the internal amps, it is loud enough uh, that it'll start getting picked up in the microphone and produce Ooh. feedback if you turn it up too high. Okay. Uh, but it, it serves the same point that it does in ENG work, which it's not for critical listening. It's not to make sure everything's perfect. It's just there to make sure, hey, their audio still works. And that's really what it's built for. If you're going to do audio monitoring, you need headphones. But um, when you're on location, you're recording something real quick, it lets you just subconsciously hear, okay, I'm getting audio from them. Uh, and that's the main point of it. So now, right next I to like that, I see a yeah. 3.5 millimeter jack. Uh, is that uh, like a headphone port or what's going on with Are that? Are you talking about these right here? No, right by the rubber pad, that little uh, silver circle right there. No, that's just a screw. No, that's, that's just, just a part screw? of the mounting. Okay, yeah. never mind. Totally uh, failing at they this. Went ahead, yeah, no, they went ahead and put the uh, headphone jack in the back here. Um, and actually, the battery mount isn't that terrible, um, even though it is plastic. Uh, the headphone jack here is in the back. Okay. Um, I've got this thing kind of in the way because I just wanted to make sure I didn't lose it. And then here's your flip switch to flip between um, whether you're listening to the preamps in here or you're listening to your camera. Okay. So for most camera setups, you actually set up both uh, its headphone jack as well as its microphone hookup. So you could listen to 
the camera to make sure that the camera is doing its job of recording properly. Because remember, you've got the input levels here for your microphone, and then those feed into your camera, which has its own input levels and its own, like for the GH3, it's automatic gain control that you can't turn off. So all those things combined, I really like the fact that I can use it as a preamp and uh, be able to hear exactly what the camera's reproducing so that I don't have to trust that just the preamp is sending the right signal and everything's plugged in right. Now, we got a question that popped up in the notes here. It asks, or, uh, Alcum B Film, I guess, whatever. I'm not going to get that right today. Uh, he's asking, how does this compare to the Easy Rig? Devin, are you familiar with the Easy Rig at all? I'm, I'm actually typing uh, this in right now so I can look it up because I'm not familiar. Oh, Rick. yeah, okay, I see it. That's one of those shoulder, yeah, I, I always forget about this guy. It's not really the same thing. This, the Easy Rig is that uh, spring-loaded backpack system that you hook onto your uh. deal. Uh, that's a stabilization system. This is just a mount that kind of turns your regular camera into a, a news gathering style ENG camera. So they're not really in the same category. The, this no. is just turning your basically like adding some weight and making it balanced for shoulder mount. That thing is a spring loaded, uh, impact absorbing, uh, sort of system. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And let me, let me comment on that too. So I've got a GH3 on here and this is the shortest rail length available. Now you can stretch out from right now what you're seeing. I could get about, about that much further out. Okay. So I could, I could put the camera from here to here, which is a huge range. And, um, and so if you need to look at the screen, especially, you want it more further out. I'm trying to get the weight closest to my shoulder. With the weight set up right now, which is the closest it is, with just running a GH3 and basically like a two-ounce lens. I've got an old Sigma on here. Um, this guy is front-heavy, and you will feel it after a while. I'm hoping that a gold mount battery on the back will offset that because they do let you uh, slide that battery way back to adjust the counterweight. And I think that'll be kind of the magic touch to make this thing more balanced. It does feel great on the shoulder, and it is easy to carry around, minus the fact that the handle moves. i got to find a way to lock that down. Uh, but other than that, it's still front-heavy. And it's because there's so much here, right here, minus the camera, that yeah. is still heavy. So even if you take the camera off, it's still a very heavy product, which I can do real quick, too, because I did put a quick release plate on it, which is another point, too. i got to find a better way to get a quick release plate on this because it's kind of – the tolerances are very odd. But – Oh, here you can see uh, it attaches with a false battery. Okay. I mean, as well as the audio jack that I pulled out. But this is the false battery it came with for your GH3 or GH4, uh, which works like any other false battery. You pull that out. Yeah. Um, I, do, I do like that it's all industry standard inside of here, which you can't see because the rails are in the way. It's a four pin. It's basically a four pin to false battery. Okay, so, so you even have if you're full using, regular power rails as opposed to like some yeah. wacky uh, barrel pin or and something like that. Same thing with the four pin back here. If you want to run power externally to this box or if you do the gold mount or V mount, it'll actually plug into that four pin. So um, I like that they use all standards like that. Their audio connector is non-standard, and that's because they're doing a little bit of audio trickery depending on if you got a black magic or this or that and a bunch of other stuff. So uh, the audio cable is proprietary for the most part. So then if you don't go with the uh, Anton Bauer V-Lock style batteries that you can move around on the back there, would it be pertinent to maybe get a counterweight on the back of the unit in order to kind of balance it out? I would say yes. It sucks that I would say yes to that because the unit's already heavier uh, than a little bit heavier than I was, I was hoping for. It is aluminum, but it's just a lot of aluminum. So um, it is built like a tank. It's one of those, though, that it's not weatherproof. 
And so I'm like, uh, it seems a little bit excessive in ruggedness when you still don't have a whole lot of weatherproof going on with this system. I know that they've got shorting and other things like that in case it does get some splashes on it. But as far as I've seen, there's nothing here that really convinces me that it's uh, watertight. So, uh, but I do love all the power jacks up here. This is for your EVF, your external recorders, your Blackmagic accessories, whatever the heck you, uh, you're going to run on the side, your DACs as well. Uh, it runs, it just runs straight voltage from the battery, which this is a special Sony battery. This is not your NP whatever. This is a BU60 or BPU60, which yeah, one is of the big a ones with the barrel, battery. the barrel plugs instead of the, uh, the set of like smooth pins or whatever. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, so for that case too, um, the batteries are expensive. They're like 80 bucks. If you buy third party, like uh, Wasabi, like I do, uh, I think they're like 120 if you're buying uh, straight from Sony. Uh, but um, that's part of why I'm also looking at the gold mount because I've already got a lot of equipment that uses that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, but 80 bucks is still way less expensive than, say, yeah. buying a V-Lock or an Anton Bauer. I mean, you're talking yeah. two or $300 per battery plus chargers for those. Even if you buy, like, used, you're still looking at a $500 investment for a two-battery kit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and uh, something to keep in mind, too, because this is built after ENG, and I know probably a lot of shooters who even use shoulder rigs aren't used to ENG as a form format. If you can tell right now with these headphones, which are headphones I have used while shooting, uh, it is awkward to shoot with these headphones on because you're going to bounce into this thing. Uh, ENG is just not really built for that. So you'll usually wear in-ears uh, when you're shooting ENG plugged into the camera, uh, or you'll just be checking using uh, the what's built on board to it as well. So different things like that uh, that you got to keep in mind for. And a counterweight, I think, would be acceptable, at least a small one, because it um, it, it is pretty front-heavy even without a camera on it. And God forbid you don't have an EVF. I mean, you add an EVF, that adds weight. You stretch it forward, that's going to add weight. So it's one of those where I feel like this thing is probably going to be really balanced for an external battery, which 100 bucks for the plate, which is a little expensive. Uh, but then you can pick up the batteries for about 150 and those batteries will last you two days without any charging. So, you know, you, you got to weigh what's, uh, what you're looking for in um, your rig and what you need. Uh, for me, though, this is trying to change my DSLR for me personally, to shoot do more documentary stuff uh, faster and easier. So that's where it's useful for me uh, or anyone who's doing ENG news reporting or gathering or something like that as a full-time camera person. Otherwise, it is kind of a big rig and it is a little pricey for somebody who's just like trying to make films and doesn't specifically need all the power and all the form factor and all the audio hookups as well. Now, one of the ones I kind of have always liked and looked at that is sort of in this genre, it doesn't have the audio system, of course, but Eldercron made that really cool rig, and I don't see it on their website anymore. It may be retired. It looks similar to this guy right here, but it split around your neck, and it actually had a balancing system, and Devin took his headphones off, so he probably didn't uh -huh. hear me talking about this, but uh, I did. the Eldercron rig... It basically goes all the way around your neck, and that's how it kind of balances out. And it had that weight system that you could mm -hmm. adjust and slide and everything else. And I feel like looking at your lunchbox, the lunchbox looks pretty darn cool, but it looks yeah. pretty big. <laughs> and, you know, well, with I, the Eldercron unit, they really slimmed everything down to, like, a minimalist approach, whereas it feels right. like the lunchbox is going more for that, like, here is everything, this is a tank, and mm -hmm. tank will destroy, as opposed to, like... <laughs> I am, you know, like I'm a gazelle running through the forest. Here's my skinny little right. legs and stuff, you know. Uh, do, you, uh, do you think the weight's going to be an issue over time, or are you going to be cool um, with that? 
to be honest, it's still lighter than a full-size ENG camera. If you're looking at a full-size Panasonic or Sony XD camera or something like that, it is lighter than those cameras. Um, so uh, as for weight, it's like I have uh, one of those systems. Um, not oh, okay. the kind you of cool the Elder Pro. Yeah. And I used it for a while. And the thing is, it was so light that I could rest it on my shoulder. But I was still like, at the end of the day, I don't have the rails attached. But at the end of the day, I was still kind of like holding the entire camera by this. All it did was provide a little shoulder pad, which really wasn't different than uh, a lot of people who make products that just add a shoulder pad to an existing camera. And you're still carrying the whole weight of the camera. Uh, so when I built my own system out of 15 millimeter rails and put a big counterweight on the back, uh, I ordered a bunch of these off of eBay, which are all... Um, they're basically, sure they're for the audio listeners, they're uh, quarter 20 I'm adapting weights. Yeah, yeah, with little quarter 20 screws on them. Uh, a couple of those and stuff, and I was able to get a really good balance that I could run it all day and not worry about it. So my goal with this, though, is to get everything balanced, and it's a different kind of shooting. This is the kind of thing that I'm not going to throw into my photography backpack and necessarily take with me on the plane. Uh, this doesn't really uh, is a substitute for having a shoulder rig uh, well, for me, it is because I have it. I'm saying that I wouldn't buy this if I was out looking for a shoulder rig or even if I was out looking for a shoulder rig and a deck. This thing is much more appropriate for I've, I'm going to get um, an Anton Bauer bag and this with my camera goes in the bag and I don't disassemble it or reassemble it or anything like that. I treat this as now part of my camera unit uh, for those projects where um, I'm looking for uh, these kind of features. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, you can't look at this as a shoulder rig. You can't look at this as a shoulder rig plus a DAC, even though it kind of looks like that and it markets as that, uh, because this really is taking on the form of just it converts your DSLR to an ENG. If you don't have a reason to have an ENG camera, then you really wouldn't have a reason to have this because there is lighter and easier ways to do this kind of stuff. Well, for one thing, it does make your camera way more professional. I mean, that's not... <laughs> And for some clients, that matters. I'm not saying it should, but uh, if you put your camera on here, you got 15 millimeter rails, you put on a matte box, suddenly you oh, look no. like uh, the matte box you know, excuse. Like the master of video. Yeah, the matte box excuse. So, um, so that's, that's something considers that, hey, it does kind of make you look cooler. Uh, <laughs> not sure if that's worth the price, but, uh, uh, but that's, that's something to consider. Um, I do like the fact that uh, it is an audio box and it's built with all these power options because I've always wanted to my EVF, my external recorder, and my camera all from one battery. So that's what this is giving me along with uh, what supposedly, I haven't done my tests yet, but supposedly great preamps as well as uh, a, you know audio levels and volume uh, amplifier and all that kind of stuff. Well, I was talking to Mitch over at Planet 5D and he said that uh, the guys working on the Lunchbox spent a lot of time being really specific and particular about the way they set up the audio interface and how they ran the traces on the board all the way down to like noise interference and everything else. And it's supposed to be a very, very good uh, preamp. So, you know, that does sound pretty nice, but how does something like that compare to maybe, I know it's not as professional, but I'm holding up my Sony A7S rig, which is just a handle, a couple of mounts and like the camera itself. Will you still be using a stripped down rig or is this going to be like your go-to for anything in town? (laughs) Uh, absolutely. It depends. If I'm at a convention and I'm walking around all day um, and I'm doing I'm talking to people, this is what I use. If I'm gathering B-roll, um, the big thing I notice or say I'm doing more short films or something like that, uh, action sequences and I want to move quickly. Uh, what you have basically there, which is a DSLR with the handle on the end of it, 
uh, that's what I see more and more people using. And that's why I see myself naturally adapting to for a lot of fast paced shooting. Uh, like the corridor digital guys was showing like, oh, a little behind the scenes here and there. And I noticed in all their behind the scenes, they're holding um, like a red Scarlet or one of the smaller red cameras. And they just have that handle on it. And that's it. They, they have one handle and they just do this the entire time. Because uh, for them, that's good enough. They've got steady hands. They just hold on to it by the handle. And they're only holding on to it for a few seconds at a time to get the shot. And they move on to the next shot. So that works for them. Whoa, I think so, I just had a dog die in the background. <laughs> Uh oh, I think everything all right. Yeah, yeah. So if you guys heard that scream, um, my dog just woke up from a nightmare, and oh, uh, apparently, like it scared the crap out of me. It scared the crap out of me. Um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> uh, sorry to distract there, but no, uh, no, no, these rigs right here are definitely They're handy. Um, I shoot yeah. on them all the time. I still use kind of the monopod approach. It's sort of one of those things that uh, works better for me. I haven't really gone to a big rig in a long time, and I still own a ton of big rigs that I just don't really use that yeah. much. So I'm not sure how much something like that would mean to me. But like I said, it's very, it's kind of a specific workflow, and it's for a, a specific type of shooting. Um, and for two grand, that may be kind of outside of your price point uh, for. Um, for getting a, something that transforms your camera in there because this, it, while it solves a bunch of problems, it also adds a few problems of weight. It makes it a bit harder to, uh, you know, maybe take it off the shoulder and do other shots with. But for me, uh, my shoulder rig, which I've taken apart, so I can't really show right now, uh, it had weights on the back. It had handles on the front. It was wide and it took up a lot of space. Uh, when this thing is ideally done with the handle and everything else, this is a very slim device. And so, therefore, it makes it easy for me to pop off and get a low shot um, or as well as pop onto a tripod. Also, too, if you are working with ENG guys, it's not just the gold mount, but you've also got that uh, whatever you call it, um, fancy tripod mount that um, all the big tripods have. Yeah, um, maybe it's you know escaping me, too. No, Don't worry. It's escaping you. Okay. All right. So, it, it's got that as well so that you can interface with that. Um and it's really, like like I said, that's why I keep using the term ENG, because everything about it is for guys who work in broadcast, and they want to take their DSLRs and make them broadcast cameras. And that's kind of what this is doing in terms of not just audio and battery, but as well as, uh, you know, size and function. Is it, man, now I want to know what the freaking thing is. I want to say V-Lock, but it's not a V-Lock, because, well... No, I think it's a V-Lock. I think you're right, it's a well, V-Lock. Yeah, but V-Locks, well, yeah, you're right. It's I think it is a V-Lock. Uh, that was the first thing that came to mind, but also the V-Locks for batteries are slightly different than the V-Locks for your mounts, but they, yeah. they work the same they way are. where it slides in and has like the little click plate and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, I think this is a pretty cool rig regardless, and if you do need it, it's definitely something to check out. Uh, we'll probably, I'll probably try and collaborate with Devin to get some of the, his coverage of this on DSLRFilmNoob.com. Mm -hmm. So I'm throwing you out there right now, Devin. That's what I'm going <laughs> to hit you up for later. Yeah. But uh, sure. awesome, and thanks for showing that off on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. It. Now, as Devin packs that up, guys, I think we're going to wrap up the show. Um, I think my dog actually is hurt, so I need to go take care of that. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I don't know what happened, yeah, but uh, my wife is signaling me off camera, and it doesn't appear to be so good. So uh, on that note, guys, Devin, where can people find you? ImpulseNetworks.tv. That's where you'll find more pictures of this as soon as I do some real testing with it. And, of course, follow us both on Twitter. Devin, where can people find you on Twitter? <laughs> Maverick M-A-V-E-R-M-C.
And you can find me as DSLR Film Noob all over the place. You can find this podcast on audio format and iTunes. You can also find it on SoundCloud and anywhere audio podcasts are distributed. Thanks as always, guys, for listening to the DSLR Film Noob podcast. I apologize for being sick, and I hope to have a real location by next week's show. On that note, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob podcast. <laughs>